If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Success Report. The Success Report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to the Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Man, we're back at it. Yep, Love it. Yep, yep. We're, we're here again. I mean, this is probably a, a favorite topic of mine, um, you know, because for the, for the simple reason that um, I sort of use it as a, a, for the listener, charity. I use charity and nonprofits um, as a means to um, compare government because it, there, there's a similar scenario with, let's say, the disconnect between expenses and revenue. So, you know, digging into charity and responsibility, um, I'm, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to this. Mm-hmm. And, and I know I know personally you're a guy who uh, puts his money where his mouth is, and you're, and you're always um, giving uh, to, to causes that you believe in. Yeah, I mean, you know, whether it's, um, you know, charity-wise or even the concept <clears throat> of, of a friend in need. And we mean, well, you know, I mean, what that yeah. is. There's that, but there's also, you know, I always say, like, the number one way we vote is with our money, right? And so, I mean, you know, the second, the piece that I think most people don't even think about is, like, what companies do you support, right? Who, who, who do you get this service from? do you align with that company? If you don't, well then maybe, maybe you should try to find a company you do align with uh, as to who you give your funds to, or in today's conversation about, you know, Facebook and censorship, whose time or who, what companies do you give your time to? What people do you give your time to? And, and I think that time piece actually relates a lot to charity because, you know, it might not cost you something monetarily, but it costs you your time. Yeah, it, it's it, it's going to be fun because I think it's important to look at how we use our resources to help those in need. And so for this episode, we're going to be looking at a McLean's article that's called uh, Canada's Best Charities 2020, uh, Best Buy Category. And so McLean's took the liberty of putting together a top 100 charities chart, Canadian charities chart. Um, from the year 2020 and so they have it uh, broken down from they look at the okay yeah so so for the overview they have a ranking that's based on a reward system that respects the donors by keeping um, their fundraising overhead and salary spending at a reasonable level but also um, they also punish um, those that's that are um, that do such spending that are so low they seem to uh, they seem too good to be true and so mm. like too little to attract competent staff and maintain high standards so there's a, a give and take and so the percentage wise the way how they break it down is um, additionally financial metrics are only, worth 60% of the final score and with transparency accounting for the other 40%. So 
so they have their overview. Um, we'll look into the methodology, but then also we're going to talk about the internship program that we've uh, been working on. For those of you who aren't on social media, uh, we or they're, or they're uh, boycotting Facebook. <laughs> yeah, Facebook, whatever. If you guys don't follow us on social media, or yeah, we we started a internship program, and so we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So, looking at the uh, looking at the the chart, they had about they had these main the main categories of charities were uh, environment, fundraisers, health, homelessness, hospital foundations, international, social services, and youth. And was was there anything about uh, this chart uh, that stood out to you? Um, it, yes and no. Um. I would say with regards to the categories there, you know, there's a, um, probably a massive category that's not included, but it doesn't surprise me. Um, because I think even evaluating it as a best charity is really, really tough. And that would be religious organizations. Hmm. What, what do you mean by like, um, what do you, what do you mean like, by so that? Mostly churches. So when I say hard to evaluate, I'm, I'm referring to the church's piece, but there are other organizations like Bible league, Canada, that is a, a charity and their focus would be, you know, obviously gospel biblical oriented. And I would say they're not even going to have an opportunity to be on this list. That said, it is McLean's and I highly doubt they're really interested in the religious categories either. Um, but I also think, you know, you could have made this from a strategic point, even if they hypothetically, let's say they like church charities, you know, if you were trying to compare, uh, a Muslim mosque to a Christian church to, you know, a Sikh temple or to, you know, whatever the, it, that becomes exceptionally difficult because of the diversity of, you know, the nature of those organizations, even though they're religious, they have different religions. And, and so I think um, it makes sense. It's not on the list, but I thought it's something to point out because um, you were talking about, one of the categories being sort of, let's say, overhead spending or, or salary spending. Yes. Um, for a church, you know, your staff is much more significant. That that actually is part of your charitable purpose. Okay. And and I know you're talking out of experience. Can you tell the audience how you know all this? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've worked in the charity church industry for the last five years, five, six years. Um, as an accountant. So I've got a pretty good insight into, you know, churches. I won't go into specifics just, just to, to maybe leave some names out of there. But if you, if you know me personally, um, he's just hard telling their business. Like, look, man, these guys got a lot of money. Well, I, I mean, to be honest, I, Pastors you know, you might pimping. Yeah. I mean, even if you know where I've worked, um, th to be honest, some of the things I'm referring to would be outside of that. Um, and that's because I had exposure that you might not realize through those jobs. Um, and so that's where, you know, if I reference something, it may or may not have anything to do with the place I worked at. Um, and, okay. And okay. Yeah. Sorry. Right, right, yeah. So, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, no, no need to name drop, but yeah, I mean, it's, but, but my good. point this is, is good. This is good. I love this. You know, with, with, if you were to sort of try to, cause again, percentage of revenue spent on administration costs right now as a church, you're not going to consider your senior pastor as an administrative cost. And so, you know, those numbers might be comparable, but the other side of it is that, you know, that's a whole different spectrum. 
and and I would say you know comparing churches against other churches um, is something that makes sense, but it's also not so simple because you know if you've got a a, a really really small church, chances are a hundred percent of their donations, or let's say ninety ninety percent of their donations, go to the pastor and pay his salary, and and then covers the building costs, right? Because the charitable activity is being a pastor or or providing uh, religious guidance. Um, okay, and, and, okay. So um, let me give some pushback then, because you know some people are probably thinking that. So, you know, and this is one of the biggest uh, beefs people have with the church is the money that comes in, and you're talking about uh, most of that fund funding going to the staff. And based on the criteria on the McLean's list, um, they're looking for. Uh, transparency and how the funds are spent and so mm-hmm. and so i guess some people are thinking well why isn't the church taking that money from the pastor and and putting it towards feeding the needy now i mean you you can make that claim um on a really big church right so when a church has got like an eight million dollar revenue and salaries are you know under let's say 25%. Well, where's the other 75% going? Chances are they're already feeding the poor. So the scenario where you've got a pastor making, let's say higher dollar values, you know, not, not in the lower income ranges, chances are he's part of an organization that is already doing all of those things. Um, And so I only bring that up to say like, you know, the example of, okay, let's say there's a church making, let's say, you know, $100,000 in donations only, and the pastor's full-time, well, what do you think? The pastor should be making 25000 so you can feed more homeless people? Like, the pastor's going to be at your food bank. Especially if he's got a wife, you know, a wife and kids, and, you know, if his wife's working, okay, well, you know, would you think that your pastor should be the lowest paid person in the congregation? Well, well, actually, <laughs> actually, that that is... Um... That's like, uh, I, use, I use the term barbershop apologetics uh, because, you know, usually, you know, when you're in the barbershop, that's when that's when the church gets attacked most, when guys are getting their fades. And so they'll say, well, you know, that's why I don't go to church, you know, because pastor's two teeth. And so they're saying, you know, why isn't he, why is he making so much money? Why does he, uh, you know, look so fly? Now, I can't defend those pastors who, you know, want to... Um, dress fly and maybe they had those clothes from before or maybe they're um bivocational in working uh two jobs right but the mm-hmm. what how i would respond to that is that um me personally and this is how i answer those questions i say me personally i don't want my pastor to be part-time mm. um because uh we we talk about um opportunity cost for being a pastor you're better off just working a regular job if you're going to be doing it for free because there's no time for it. I need mm-hmm. my pastor. When I was sick in the hospital, I need my pastor to be by my bedside. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, when when my marriage is in trouble, I need my pastor to come to my house. And if he if he's if he's shepherding 200 or whatever the 200 300 people, and he's divvying up about among elders, and then he has to do study and prep for sermon time, and so forth. Um, that's a full-time job. And and we're not, we're not even talking about him taking care of himself because part of like, and we all know this, anybody who's a Christian knows this, like you can't spend your time pouring into everybody. 
right? You need time to go sit down and read your Bible and pray for yourself. And, mm -hmm. and this is why pastors get sabbaticals. Um, being a pastor is a full-time job. I want my pastor like to be 24 seven, 24, yo, yo, uh, how much you want to bet? I have enough pastor friends. And that's what they tell me. Like, remember when COVID hit and everybody's like, oh, I'm home on lockdown. Ask any pastor if they were on, or if they were on lockdown or if they well, were, or if they like, were, they were on their phone. Yeah. Doing, doing counseling. Like that stuff doesn't stop. And so mm -hmm. all I'm just saying is that, um, actually, you know, uh, just to, to reference Paul Carter, who we had on the show, I, I don't know if it's, uh, in his sermons or I've heard him where I've heard him say it. But, you know, he has to be very conscious of like, okay, how many nights in a row this week did I have to go out to something? Maybe I have to say no because I got to I gotta spend time with my wife and kids, right? And so being really aware of how often they're called away from the house. Yeah, I think he has something like, I won't go, won't get called out of the house three nights in a row or four nights in a row or something, you know, so he's got sort of a, obviously it's, let's say a, a, a broad rule, but, but for the exact reason you're talking about, they could, a pastor could be outside of their home every single night of the week with something, you know, assuming they're pastoring 200 people. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then and we, we didn't, yo, Joel, we didn't even talk about having them having kids yeah, and spending yeah. time with the kids, spending time with their wives. And so for the person who makes the argument, okay, well, why doesn't pastor just work for free? Okay. You find a pastor that works for free and you tell me how well you, how well your spiritual life is doing. <laughs> right? Do you you show me a pastor who's flipping burgers and then comes to preach a sermon to tell me how good that sermon is going to be? Yeah, you see what I'm saying? I mean, so not to say that you can't have the exceptions, um, but it's know, hard. I, yeah, exactly. It's very hard, yeah. and 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 you rather have you rather have your guy being full time. And I think in light of the McLean's list and why churches aren't on this list, um, it's pretty obvious that uh, churches can't make this list because of the anatomy of that church of the church and i think about because this episode is called subsidiarity and charity and so pope leo the 13th um he um he had his he had this uh catholic social teaching called subsidiarity and it's defined as this and this is important for us to know in regards to how we as uh believers interact in society and bring about change with our resources. And so subsidiarity uh, thus means that tasks are to be fulfilled by the lowest element of social of the of a social hierarchy. That means uh, people, families, church. And only when uh, this proves impossible is a higher community such as the state justified in stepping in and offering assistance. So when these um, when when these people can't function in and produce, then the, then the this state can come in and help. But once matters are set right, however, the higher community, um, being the the state, must then withdraw. So subsidiarity was deemed important for maintaining a healthy social order in which all parts retain their vitality and initiative over and against the threat of an omnicompetent state. And so, use your imaginations with me and think of a hierarchy, right? A triangle, right? And so the way how subsidiary works is that God's at the top, individuals are at the bottom. And at the top of the triangle is the church. And then below the church is the state. And then below the state is the intermediary structures. So that's marriages, schools, charities, political parties, professional associations, uh, families, businesses, labor unions, drama clubs, and uh, dance troops. So everybody has a role to play within society. And 
And so the church has a role to play and isn't, um, yeah, and basically ha has a role to play in it. Uh, and we talked about this with Joe Boot when Joe Boot was on the show, and we talked about uh, sphere sovereignty. And so uh, when we talk about sphere so sovereignty, that's the work of Abraham Kuyper. And I don't know if you guys heard us mention this guy before, but um, he's a Dutch academic, uh, professor, politician, pastor, right? And so um, his is less hierarchical. So it's not about hierarchy in this aspect when we talk about sub um, sphere sovereignty. So the idea is that uh, the social order is a lot more flat and there's overlap in regards to people's roles in society. So uh, God gives these agencies um, sovereignty in, in, in their responsibilities. So for example, right, the mom has sovereignty over her children um, and so forth. And, 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 and the church has um, sovereignty in a particular sphere. And then the state has sovereignty in a particular sphere. And there's areas where they might overlap. But the point I'm making is that um, there's um, a joint responsibility that everybody has a role to play in helping others. Joel harps on this all the time in that the government oversteps its bounds and taking away the responsibility or incentive for us to help our, our, our fellow brother. And I'm guilty. And I'll confess, I'm guilty of that in that when it's, when I see a, a person on the street and, you know, they want money, the first thing that comes through my mind is that, okay, well, I pay taxes. So why don't you just go apply for welfare and stop bothering me? Yeah. And, and, and I think, um, if I was to, you know, try to be very precise in the way that I frame it, it's not that the government crowd, like the terminology government crowds them out is correct. But that doesn't that doesn't just properly describe how the economics or the economic environment, i.e. the incentives are changed. So the example that I think of is I, I don't depend on you to be responsible for me. So why are you depending on me? Right. So the if if there was no government welfare, the incentive for you to help your neighbor is if I was in this position, I want him to help me. But now that I take away that sort of personal connection between providing for my own community and remove it and put it at the governmental level, I now have, I, I lack the incentive because for, I, I, and that's sort of an oversimplification of, of how the incentive structure has changed, right? Because I'm not depending on you, you're not depending on me. But the idea is also when you receive charity, it sort of came from me through my taxes, but now it's impersonal in nature. And so think about it this way. If over your lifetime, every year you found that there was another neighbor you needed to give, let's say $1,000 to, and of course this would be in lieu of taxes, the way that you interact with your neighbors from receiving gifts directly and giving gifts directly of that nature would be vastly different. And so the lack of those experiences replaced by an impersonal handout from government changes the way that we interact with each other changes the way that we perceive each other and so it's not in my opinion it's not so clear how government crowds out um the you know charity in this case the other example that i think you know darnell you're you're sort of referring to where you know you see this person on the street you know you're like i'm not going to support you know why don't go get the welfare program we the same thing actually happens in the church Right? When you have a, a, a benevolence fund within the church, 
Well, guess what? The government has put rules in place that if I start supporting someone in my church regularly, now that is a, a taxable benefit. They have to reclaim that essentially as welfare from, from a private organization. So churches now are incentive they, they can do, you know, the way you can support, and this isn't just churches, but in general, any organization that helps the poor, any ongoing support becomes a taxable event, something that I have to issue a tax slip to the individual for. But if I do a one-time sort of support, that's okay, right? So if someone in your church comes and says, like, we're totally underwater, all our bills are backed up, and, and the church decides, okay, let's pay their heat, hydro, water bills, get those all caught up, you know, as a one-time thing, that's okay. That's not taxable. Um, and you'd sort of have to show that you're not showing favoritism. You're following sort of, let's say, some standard rules. But there's a second piece to this. The church now... I've, I've literally seen this question, and, and I don't mean to be, if anyone's hearing this who's done this, I don't mean to be disparaging. I'm speaking about the environment that's created. Church leaders will, will sort of first say, have you, expo- have you um, taken advantage of every government program that's there? Right? Before we help you, or as part of helping you, are we make, giving you, getting you involved with all of the, the welfare programs that exist? And, and, if we go back to the conversation with Joe Boot, the episode we discussed the idea of a sphere of sovereignty. Well, sorry, but, but whose responsibility is charity under sphere of sovereignty? We said it was the family right now. The family becomes a little bit more broad in a sense, but now because of the way government has encroached on that responsibility, families now go, well, go get the welfare program. Now, obviously with your kids, you let them live in your house, parents, you know, make the basement into a basement apartment. So they're, you know, kids that need help will still, but beyond sort of, let's say that one generation, you know, how many people really help their cousins or, or, or aunts and uncles, right? Like not to say some people don't, but how much more would we have a, family that is taking care of each other if we didn't have government doing it and and i would argue that that would actually lead to a better society because we have vested interest in each other um, more so as opposed to being very autonomous uh, in 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 living yeah and i think and i was gonna say that in light of a sphere of sovereignty and and you talked about charity and we're talking about charity now, and we we, we talked about um, you said we, you can add spiritual to this McLean's list, education, health, fundraising. I, can we make an argument that as Christians, uh, one of our main priorities is the funding of the church to do the church of the work of the spreading of the gospel and missionary work and so forth? And this is why the reason why it won't be on the list. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, obviously, we've sort of avoided the list, and and that wasn't necessarily my intention by bringing up, you know, church. But but for us, um, I think it's an excellent point. You know, it's important. And no, if you go through some of their criteria, like they have a tab. So there's sort of four tabs: overview, charity grades by sector, top 100 list, and then methodology. If you go through the methodology, it doesn't really tell you it's going to exclude churches, but. If I look at certain things, like for example, they say they must have a charity intelligence report updated to the for the 2016 tax year or more recent. I would highly doubt any church is going to get that report because it the members don't need that report. 
and the members are of the church or the donors of the church are going to obtain the same information in a different means. Um, so I only say that to say there's, there's a couple reasons why they wouldn't be on this list, but if I want this list to be comprehensive, um, I think you need to sort of consider churches and charities, but also know why they're not on the list. Right. And I think that, um, yeah, that's a good point, Joel. And so I guess when we look at us and the responsible of, of society and individuals and the way we spend our money, um, there's different places that we feel like if we invest our money in, in certain areas, that will be best what that's what's best for society. So again, on the list we had, they had uh, homelessness. That's important. Pouring money into the youth. That's important. Environment. Uh, they have one that's other. Maybe maybe that might be church. International aid, social services, fundraising, organization, health, education. And so in regards to sphere sovereignty um, and our responsibility to fund the causes we believe in, uh, as, as a Christian, uh, it's funny, I was... Um, doing devotion with Tyra and um, we were in Luke chapter 12 verse 13 to 34 and I, I'm sure some of you are familiar with the passage that's where uh, <laughs> Jesus calls the guy fool your soul is required of you uh, if you're familiar with that passage but so I'm, I'm just gonna um, read it for you and and, and I want to point out an observation that uh, me and Tyra made from it now uh, if you could please turn, um, get your Bibles, uh, and please turn to Luke chapter 12, verse 13 to 34. Say amen when you get there. Amen. Luke chapter 12, verse 13 to 34, and it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or an arbiter over you. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I, do, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so uh, what I first thought this passage was about was a guy who um, wasn't, um, wasn't, doesn't know God and wasn't, wasn't looking towards um, the Lord um, and wasn't trying to prepare for eternity. But when you look at verse, when you look at verse uh, tw uh, 20, uh, this is the issue. It says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Right? So he's a fool because the resources he left behind are for nobody. Mm. Right? He, he, the, the crime wasn't him, um, um, building bigger barns to store his wealth. 
that 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 wasn't why he was a fool. He was a fool because he didn't leave his Legacy. wealth behind for other people. Right. Right. And because, you know, every time I heard, it, I was like, oh, because he, he he wasn't really he's a fool because he wasn't saved or he wasn't looking towards heaven. Mm -hmm. But no, he was a fool because he had a lot of resources, but he didn't put it in the right place. So there's nothing wrong with investing and building wealth, but we want to make sure that we leave a legacy. Like, yeah, like you said, and that we are being um, uh, ph philanthropic um, with our resources and that we are um, looking for the um, to promote good. Yeah. And, and a couple of verses that sort of to come to mind that, that relate to that is, you know, verse 21. So um, from NASB says, so is the man who stores up his treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And so what I thought of in that regard was, you know, the idea of like, uh, James says, what's true religion, taking care of the, the, the poor and the widow. Right. And so, I don't know. That's just what I was thinking about with being rich towards God has sort of two meanings, right? There's the, are you eternally minded, right? So are you spending all of your time making money in this world, but not, you know, uh, spiritually enriching yourself, not, not having a relationship with God, you know, so you're not eternally minded, but also even if you are eternally minded with your resources that you have on this earth, are you, are you considering what God's calling you to? Yes, and and this is why I brought up the idea of subsidiarity, and and sphere sovereignty. So subsidiarity is the responsibility, um, and that change is happening from the grassroots level. That change is happening from the home, um, from the local level, the church, the individual. That the individual can 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 bring about change, and we know this because that's how history has always moved forward. Um, Barack Obama's one man. Uh, Abraham Lincoln is one man. Uh, Martin Luther King is one man. Um, but these are what these are single individuals. Um, Abraham Kuyper, um, Frederick von Mises. These are just individual people that that have changed history, right? And so and so that's why it's, I bring up the subsidiarity in in the in how change happens with the local level. But then sphere sovereignty points to uh, the different responsibilities different agencies have within the culture, the state, the church, the family, the school. So I think for the listener, just you, you sort of been referencing subsidiary, you've been referencing severe sovereignty. Do you want to just quickly sort of unpack how they're similar and different? Because okay, they are, there's, yes. a, there's a lot of similarity, but at the same time, you know, you sort of been using, I don't want to say interchangeably, but you sort of jumped from one to the other. And I think they both have value in this conversation, but it's, yeah, I think it'll help the listener if you, you sort of point out okay. how they're Okay, so so the way how they're similar is that they believe that that the that there's a that there's different responsibilities throughout the culture. Uh, the family has a responsibility, the state has a responsibility, the church has a responsibility, the school has a responsibility. Um, but where they're different is that that change happens at the local level with the individual, with the family. And then sphere sovereignty is saying, okay, well, each particular um, agency has its own responsibility and culture. Sometimes they overlap and sometimes they don't. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Right. And so, and so we bring that up to, to, to segue into uh, our internship program. Right. And so let's just start with the simple question. What is an internship? 
Uh, well, I mean, I think a, a good example sort of goes back to something I said on a previous episode that like when you're, you know, to some extent is a job, but it's not a regular job. And, you know, what I said on the previous episode was that, you know, money isn't the most important thing sometimes when you have a job, especially when you're entering the workforce. Yeah, the money is good because um, it helps you, you know, pay for whatever. But the experience you gain um, is is more valuable. Uh, and, and that's sort of what an internship is intended to be. It's, it's primarily about experience and learning. Um, and so we're, you know, our hope with this is to pour into somebody that has an interest in, you know, let's just say, um, podcasting is not the, not, not a comprehensive enough term. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, but of course, just like, um, social media development being, you know, if they want to start their own podcast or they want to, uh, see how, how things work behind the scenes with the sixth sense report. Um, yeah, we can, we can help you do that. Uh, so for people who don't like, for example, there are a lot of famous people who've taken interns to get to where they're at. And actually there is an advantage to getting an internship versus just getting hired. Because like you said, Joel, the importance of an internship is that the work or the experience or the skill that you develop is more important and more valuable than the money. Because yes, this is a paid internship for those of you who don't know and who are not on social media, that, that it is a paid internship but your the concern isn't for necessarily for the money because the skills you're getting is more valuable than the money and if you are concerned about the money then this will not be the internship for you and that's why um on the header we put the first the first requirement is that um you believe in the sixth sense report brand mm -hmm. Right, because you have to love the work that you're doing. You have to believe in what you're doing. If you don't believe in what you're doing, you're not going to do good work, and then the money's not going to come. You do good work, the money will come. Um, so, I just wanted to list uh, a couple people who have had internships and turned out all right. Uh, we have uh, Steven Spielberg, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. He, he did an internship. Uh, the prolific filmmaker and producer began his career by attempting an unofficial internship at the Universal Studios. Uh, St uh, Stephen was 17 years old, and although he wasn't allowed on the movie lot, uh, he, as he wasn't an official intern, he sneaked in anyway and <laughs> networked with directors. Now, how did that turn out for him? <laughs> right? Yeah, I think um, it's pretty you good. Have Oprah Winfrey. You, you have Oprah Winfrey. Uh, so the famous TV host got her start by doing an internship at WLAC-TV, a CBS affiliate in Nashville, Tennessee. Oprah succeeded to such an extent that the program offered her a full-time spot as a reporter, and she eventually became the first African African-American female uh, news anchor. Her internship, therefore, was directly responsible for her professional career. Um, how about Tom Hanks? Right? Tom Hanks has made... Um, has has been in films that have grossed more than $4.9 billion. Um, right. So he, Tom Hanks completed an internship at the great lakes theater festival in Cleveland, Ohio, while he was attempting to complete a college degree. 
Hanks credits his internship for giving him confidence as he acquired valuable theater production experience. The internship eventually lasted three years and led him uh, led to him dropping out of college. Life is like a box of chocolates, indeed. <laughs> and uh, um, Tom Ford, um, the the clothing designer, and he, and he what did he do? He um, for those of you who don't know, Tom Ford's architectural studies no doubt helped develop his aesthetic sensibilities. Right. So Anderson Cooper's one. We have Bill Gates on the list. Uh, we have uh, Steve Jobs, and the list goes on. And Puff, Puff, Puff is on this list. Uh, yo, it's Black History Month. Uh, uh, Spike Lee's on the list. So the point we're making. The, the well, point. and and I mean, you know, if you look at the industries they're in too, right? Um, these are industries that, for the most part, the internship gets you exposure. And that exposure becomes, you know, yes, you do learn, but you get exposure and learning. You know, I think about, I don't know how it works in Canada, but, you know, you, I don't know if you recall all the, like, uh, hospital internships, right? Like, basically making no money or, or, or literally no money and just, you know, working to, to prove yourself so that you can become a, a paid position. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the point is that the internship will help you get to where you are. And one of the, one of the, or three of the key values that we wanted to help the intern develop, because we believe that, um, if you learn these three key values that which we're going to help you with, uh, even if you don't go into podcasting or social media or whatever the case may be, whatever gifting you have, you can develop that. So for example, the three things you'll, you'll benefit from, you'll walk away from is economic, theological, and financial literacy. Uh, Joel, do you want to talk about the importance of economic literacy? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's a quote that I'm going to butcher because I wasn't it's like economics is a dismal science and like the quote is that you know so many politicians basically you know spout off about um you know an economic idea while completely ignorant of economics um and and you know i always describe economics I try to use non-financial concepts or examples. I mean, I always talk about, you know, part of me recording this episode is I'm sacrificing time with my family. That's an, that's economizing my time. That's what economics is. It's about allocation of scarce resources for us as individuals. Our time is the most scarce resource that we have. And, and so understanding that economics is about the incentives that exist and the decision and what, goes into the decisions people make are it gives you tools to perceive and analyze situations so differently um, and i think you know i think about our original producer who from listening to our conversations talked to us about okay i see things differently now at least whether he agreed with us or not is not so much the point it's it's that you know some of these tools with economics are just so foreign and until you sort of get to see them laid out and, and walk through them and, and ask maybe some tough questions, um, economics is a dismal science. It almost makes no sense at times. Um, but it's, to some people, a very important uh, a way. And, and people, you know, I'm an example of that. If I didn't have economics, um, I would lack a lot of tools to perceive um, 
the the underlying context for where things unfold, right? I mean, I said this uh, on an episode of Kazin Graham Dialogue that's coming out that most people think I'm anti-government, but that's because my conclusions come to opposing government. But I come there because I use economic tools to say, wait, should we be doing this? Whereas people, I would argue, generally analyze things from a motivations perspective. Well, the government has the right intentions. Therefore, how could it be bad? Um, and I think that's an oversimplistic analysis that without economic tools, I'm not surprised that many people make because how else would you evaluate them? Well, they can't earn profit. Yeah, well, why is that a problem? And until you have economics as a tool to see how profit relates to incentives, um, it's... I think it leaves you uh, too willing to accept solutions that may actually not be productive. And then I, I would add that uh, in regards to the theological aspect, of course, you know, you want to get right with God and you want to, you know, be saved. That's important. But there's also another command that God gives us. And you hear me talk about all the time, the cultural mandate, the first great commission, um, God calling us to use uh, his creation to bring about human flourishing. So part of it is understanding um, how the world, how God has created it and how to use it to the best of your ability to help others, but also understanding sin, understanding your sinful nature and other people's sinful nature and how to navigate the world in light of it. And this is why it's important to have, um, to be theologically literate, to be able to interpret, um, I'm going to use a big word, meta-narrative. The meta narrative is um, God working behind the scenes, the story behind the story. Yes, you're going through a divorce. Yes, you have cancer. Uh, yes, you just got jumped in the alley and robbed. But there's but there there's a bigger hope. Um, there's a there's a brighter hope behind all the darkness we're seeing, and it's important, especially for your sanity and mental health, that you are that you have fine um, theological literacy. And then the last benefit. Well, you're before gonna... I would say just. The and and for the listener that's you know okay I don't really care about theology, the one thing. Well, that, hold on, you know, hold on, hold on. I want to answer that person who says I don't care about theology. I would say if you have a comment about God and about higher other beings, then you are a theologian. You're already in this. But go ahead. Yeah. Well, and and it's okay. So let me reword that for the person who says I don't need to learn theological literacy. I feel like I've already got that skill. I think one of the things that me and you talk about. I don't know if we do it too much on the show, but as we we have our conversations the skills that we have learned from exegesis of text and how we apply that outside of the biblical context. So even the theological literacy of that approach, how do we apply that approach when we're analyzing, uh, a, you know, whether it's a newscast or whether it's yes. uh, an article. Or, um, so there's the application yes. of that theological literacy yes. uh, that that the listener may not, uh, or, or the potential... Um, candidate might not think is as valuable as as we th at least i think it is um yeah and so and, and i think that like component ideas like social justice um and understanding uh what is racism what is justice these are all theological concepts and i would argue that the God of the Bible has the monopoly on what is right and what is wrong. So as much as you want to know about how to use your time wisely and a reallocation of resources, God knows the heart 
and he's a master of the heart and and he has given us all that we need to know about the human heart and what's wrong with the world and so this is why it's important to be uh theologically literate and so the last thing um that we want to help the intern with is financial literacy and we got help from Xion Ediemi, uh, and he's the host of the True Wealth podcast, uh, formerly known as um, uh, Dollar Savvy. And so Sean's been on the show before, and he's a financial. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And and, and he's a, he's a financial advisor, and um, basically what the intern will have because we're going to be paying the intern and they'll be getting coming into some money. Uh, we want to make sure that you are using the money wisely. And so you'll have once a month sessions with uh, Sean to develop your financial literacy um, and, and, and learn how to be a better steward of, of, of your funds. And so we believe that these three concepts will help you to um, grow your potential as a person, whatever your gifting is. Um, you, if you have these, these key components, um, then you will be able to to be successful and be a contributing member to society. And I just wanted to quickly just hit on one point that you made, Joel, about um, economics and the use of time and and about the use of time and then time is very valuable. And part of it is that with pointing back to how much money you're going to get, we're not gonna disclose that on the, on the show, but the point is that uh, Joel and I have, we believe in these values. We believe in this cause. And we believe that because of the values that we hold to, these particular values, um, we can't take money from the government because the government's going to, you know, just put red tape on us and tell us what we can't do. Um, but because we believe in economic values, theological um, and, and financial literacy, we're going to take it upon ourselves to fund um, this particular venture to help bring about change. So six cents makes change ain't just a fly statement. Like this is real. This is real ish, man. I, I thought you were about to bust out a rap that you prepared or something. I was like, oh no, whoa. Yeah, I know, whoa. I know. Next time, <laughs> you got you got all like hyped up in there. I was like, okay, where's yeah, it going with this? Yeah, yeah, no. no but yeah, but, yeah. but it's, it's important that yeah, we're we're putting money behind this. But for those people who are thinking that okay, I'm coming in to to, to get the job to make money, um, this is not what it's about. It's about developing your skill. And we we talked about this like in one of our first episodes that the true minimum wage is zero. It's zero. <laughs> So if you don't, right, right, the true minimum wage is zero. Because people are like, okay, so if I get this thing, then da 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 da. But the true minimum wage is zero. In light of that, if if you're a grown man, it's it's, it's going to be harder for you to do the work for relatively free, because as an adult, there's you can easily responsibilities, and you can easily go get a job that'll pay more. So there's no point in you coming to do that. We'd like you. We'd like anybody. Anybody's free to open to anybody to come to the internship. But if you're a young person and you're not eligible to work, this is where you coming to to join the internship is beneficial for you. Because you're not able to work, that money, whatever money we give you, is going to be better than not getting any money from working at all. Mm-hmm. And, right? and that's where, you know, the idea of like, well, you're also building your resume, you're, you're putting experience, you know, there's a, um, just the idea that, oh, I only work for money, um, is something I think that, uh, 
I don't know if it's society or school, like we just have this sort of very, uh, you know, I work to get money so that I can live. Um, you know, most just this, the, you know, even the idea of like, oh, my job is, bo- you know, I work at a boring job, right? So um, I think the goal here is we're, we're trying to, you know, hopefully someone who's going to come along that's that's passionate about this kind of thing and, and enjoys it as opposed to looking at it like a chore. Um, but they, they're learning and they're growing. Uh, and that's, you know, maybe maybe spending more productive time on social media yes. than normal. Yes, but, but, but see, <laughs> but this is the heart of entrepreneurship because when you are doing work that's meaningful, it'll be meaningful to others. And that's mm-hmm. when the money starts coming in because instead of just chasing money, oh, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm chasing money, stop chasing the money and develop that skill you have and, and provide a service that no one else can provide, then the money will come in. So making sure that we don't have um, our priorities when it comes to being an entrepreneur backwards. So if, so hopefully, you know, for anybody that's listening and you want to um, send in your resume, send in your resume um, to sixcentsreport at gmail.com. Dot com. Um, let us know. Um, yeah. And, and, and just, yeah. And this is this episode and let, and let us know that you're interested and then we'll uh, be in contact with you. Yeah. And it, I mean, you can also, if you have questions or you're, you know, want more information, feel free to email us. Uh, we can maybe give you a little rundown of what that role takes yes, and, course, and go from there. Course, so, course. I mean, email or, or hit us up on, on social media, six cents report at Gmail or uh, sorry, at Facebook or Twitter mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and just let us know. And uh, okay, Joel, what's your two cents? Yeah. My, my two cents is that, um, that, that charity is something that society, um, I almost want to say undervalues. Um, you know, there's an article from Fraser Institute that charitable donations hit an 18-year low in 2020. Now, of course, this is a year that arguably it's not surprising because how many people were there without income or, you know, um, lost lost jobs. So, it, I mean, it, it is what it is. And actually, I, I, I probably stand corrected. I think this might the the article is referencing uh, twenty eighteen as the as the the calendar year. But I'm guessing now that I've I've corrected myself that the twenty twenty most likely would fall underneath it. But again, I could be wrong. You know, when when government's handing out money, people got to give some, got to put it somewhere. And and you know, if it was excess money, that chances are maybe charitable giving went up, which would be kind of interesting. Um. So, yeah, but I mean, in general, I think um, the role of, of charity in society is undervalued. I think government continues to try to, to take over these things. Uh, I got a great article that I'll, I'll put in the, the show notes page from, from Fee that says, what if charity replaced taxation? Um, you know, I also think about our a previous episode when we were talking about foreign aid. You know, foreign aid is another example of, of essentially government charity. And, you know, there's plenty of reports out there for years that, that the, this type of charity is corrupt. Um, it, it really doesn't uh, achieve much or at all. And so, you know, I'm a big proponent of, of private charity and, you know, whether it's taxable or not, um, I think this our society would do better if we continue to sort of look for helping our neighbor, but also living in community when we're in trouble, we go to our neighbors or our community first and, and try, and you know, maybe there's an aspect of shame where people want to go to the government and do it in secrecy. 
but I think that actually results in a hindrance in our relationships long run. What about you? What's your two cents? Uh, yeah, so my two cents is just that I think it's important that we put, we steward our funds well, right? And that, again, this is not, we're not saying that um, give us money. What Joel and I are trying to demonstrate is that uh, we are trying to do what it says in Luke 12. We're trying to um, leave a legacy and and put our funds behind the values that we believe in because we know that the things that we believe in will not get any support um, from Justin and his squad. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? It's just like, you know what I mean? Like, yo, but man, he announced like, you know, black entrepreneur support or something, well, right? I, well, well, I'm, you know, man, I'm not black enough. So it is what it is. But that's because you didn't vote for Joe Biden. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm a big believer. You're a big believer. We're not, we're not here to make money. Um, we believe in these values. And so, um, we want to support it. And so all we're saying to you guys is make sure that you are good stewards of the resources God is giving you and that you're supporting um, um, ventures you believe in. You know, you, you, you support your family, you support your church. Hey, maybe you might support um, your media too, right? Because the world is growing, right? And now people are picking and choosing the media that they want to invest in. And so yeah, shout out to uh, True North. Uh, who who runs their media through a nonprofit charity? So you can get right. a tax receipt for supporting them. Right, right. And so um, I'll just leave this. Uh, and this is what's on our um, intern contract, and it says this: The Sixth Sense Report seeks an intern to assist in day-to-day -day social media activity. This internship will give the intern valuable real-world experience in the context of uh, content creation and curation. Sixth Sense makes change by combating social disenfranchisement with developing human potential. We do this by teaching economic, theological, and financial literacy in the context of everyday life. And that's what you guys are hearing in every episode. These things being put into context in everyday life. We are confident our internship will help you maximize your God-given gifts for the greater good. That's my two cents. And I think the internship speaks for itself with what we're trying to do. Six cents makes change. But you heard me? Does that make sense?